This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Coming to you from the SBH Amphitheatre, it's double feature time again, and this week it's an ancient and modern take on Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm Jonathan Roberts, and I'm joined by the new papers, Chow Suan. Hello. Hello. As I said, it's an ancient versus modern take on the Queen biopic. No prizes for guessing which one I represent. So, Suan, are you a fan of Queen? I'm a pretty big fan of their music, but I can't pretend to know very much about the band's history. Well, before these two Queen fans get into what they thought of the film, the plot. Cue the music. Reading out student a part-time package handler, Farouk Bolsara is not getting along with his traditional Parsi parents. Okay, he's much more interested in watching a band called Smile at the local students' union bar. As luck would have it, at that very moment, Smile's lead singer quits. Farouk, or Freddy, as he's calling himself now, offers his services. Poodle head science buffing guitar shredder Brian May, a jack lad dentist Roger Taylor, join with quiet bass assassin John Deacon to become Queen. And Farrakh is now Freddie Mercury, if you didn't know already. Suddenly, they're churning out the tunes and getting all the girls and boys interested, including young Barry Austin, Freddie's love of his life. But as the band grows, the villainous presence of manipulative lover Paul Prenter feeds the singer's monstrous ego and leads Freddie down a greasy pole of depravity away from the people who love him. Can Freddie claw his way back in order for Queen to reclaim their rock throne? Or will... Dum-dum-dum. Another one bite the dust. So, so Anne, what did you make of Bohemian Rhapsody? I thought the movie was a ton of fun to watch. It was equal parts foot-tappingly energetic and also really quite moving. Foot-tappingly energetic. (laughs) But it was a really, really easy film to love. It was so much fun to watch. It was. I mean, okay, it has issues. And I'm coming to this as a fan of Queen, old school fan of Queen. I mean, I remember Live Aid. <laughs> JB, your, your age is, I'm showing. Yeah, yes, I know. That's why I'm the ancient one. But they were great. They rehearsed and it showed. Queen grabbed the audience by the throats. They were amazing. And I remember being hugely disappointed by many other acts, uh, particularly Duran Duran. They were awful. But Queen were pure energy. And you wouldn't think that this was a band on the verge of giving it all up. So, yeah, the music is fantastic. So what else worked for you? It was a joy to watch. It was fun costumes, pretty good acting, I think, on the part of the lead. Really good storyline and songs you know so well you could rock out to pretty much the entire film. But to be honest, I was mostly living for the music and concert segments. I mean, it mostly felt like a live show, especially since I watched it in IMAX. It was so catching and so fun that immediately after I actually convinced my friend who came with me to come along for a Queen karaoke. (laughs) (laughs) And we spent three hours basically just re-singing Queen songs. And I mean, I've been listening to the game on repeat since, but that might be less the movie and more just because I love that record. Okay, so what's your favourite track from the game? Easy, crazy little thing called love. Ah, the little doo-woppy kind of this number. Thing. Yeah, all right. Oh, God, it's awful when people try and sing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the music worked. And while it is miming, it worked. And it's a hell of a move to recreate most of the Live Aid performance, all 20 minutes of it. But it worked. And it's, I had a tear in my eye at the start of that. Maybe that's just my age. But it was rightfully triumphant. The other great thing about this, and he is bound to get awards, is Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury. In fact, it's not as Freddie Mercury. He is Freddie Mercury to an almost supernatural degree from that kind of toothy, fruity pronunciation. And so, oh, hello, dear. Uh, Or when he's stalking the stage like some flamboyant sex panther in a glittery leotard, he is Mr. Fahrenheit. You're right. But I must also say I really love that the band's badassery and just their general guts to test the limits really came through. I felt so empowered just watching the movie, really. 
Yeah, I mean, some of the studio scenes worked, some of the studio scenes. I mean, it showed the joy of creating music, and much like uh, the Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy. But, and this is where we come to the bad stuff, outside of the music, a, a lot of it falls quite flat. Uh, I mean, you expect some kind of conflation, some contrivance in biopics, but this really pushes it to a near ludicrous level. It, in one particular sequence, spoilers if you like, the idea that Mercury not only drove around London, found the love of his life, went to visit his parents, who he came out to and reconciled with, and then played Live Aid all on the same day. It's like something out of Love Actually. It's He's got a time turner. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. But where this kind of twisting of history really threatens to overstep the mark for me, anyway, is in Mercury being given his uh, HIV diagnosis uh, a couple of years early, just to, for it to fit into the film's timeline. And it superficially helps the drama. I don't know that it needs to be in there to help the drama. Queen's real story is astounding enough, and it's heartbreaking enough. It doesn't need these embellishments. And maybe that's just me coming out from a journalistic point of view, uh, but yeah, that that really didn't sit easy with me. And outside of Freddy, the rest of the characters are just shells, really. Yeah, I must agree. I feel like the film just took the easy way out with character development and relationships. The conversations felt false and super awkward. And the relationships and tension between the characters were just simplified and glossed over to the point where they just seemed superficial. It was a script they were reading off, you know? And I mean, they pretty much condensed the one quote-unquote villain Paul Prenter, played by Ellen Leach, into a two-dimensional comic book bad guy. One li- so one line in particular actually made me laugh, despite the film's lackluster attempt at making that scene all dark and dramatic and moody with all the rain. So Aidan Gillen, who played John Reed, the band's manager, he uttered these hilarious words after being fired when he was played out by Prenter. He says, you fired the wrong snake. <laughs> to be honest, that, that bit didn't really sit that poorly with me. I think the... Uh, where Freddie splits up with Printer later, that bit was more oh. hilarious, where they've got the full Days of Our Lives soap opera, having an argument facing away from the person, and it's in a rainstorm as well. It's like thundering rain, and then like like two whole metres away, but somehow they're having this fight. Yeah, and just as an aside, uh, so I was surprised that some of the wig work is quite passable here. Aside from Mercury's moustache, which as soon as you get a close-up, you you can see the netting underneath the fake mustache. That's awful. Oh, it's bad. Well, Aidan Gillen's wig really bad for no reason. And it There's sits no weird re- on his head. Yeah, it looks stuck on. Well, yeah. I mean, it looks like a squashed hedgehog. But yeah. In this film, there's clearly an extra ground against Prenter here, and he did go to the press to sell his story. Uh, they also highlight a journalist's name in the press conference, and I can't remember what her name is, but it's I can only assume that she wronged them at some point as well, because there seems to be some axe grinding. They were calling out some people here, straight up. Yeah, but Prenter, I mean, his character comes out of some kind of like lifetime version of single white female, some kind of knockoff thriller. He's the sociopath boyfriend, not giving the messages to Freddie and... Well, as we said in the plot, leading him down a dark, dark path of depravity and the gay clubs of Munich. So much leather. Yes, there was so much leather in that part. But the treatment of Prenter also leads to issues of how the movie treats Freddy's private life and his sexuality. Uh, They seem to be insistent that it's Prenter who leads him astray. 
And Freddy is shown to be the lonely guy that puts up this front of hedonism, but he doesn't actually enjoy the hedonism. And it doesn't really ring true to, well, if you watch Queen documentaries and stuff, I mean, people admit, you know, Freddie Mercury, he went at life with, you know, complete verve. I mean, you know, they've got songs called Don't Stop Me Now. He's the true blue party boy. Yeah, this is, this feels like the Queen approved version of history. Uh, Brian May and Roger Taylor, the remaining members of the band they've taken the best part of the decade to make this i mean it's been a long long process but you know this is far from what's and all the parties are quite tame you know it's, it's weird to see people say yes let's get drunk in an 80s party really not gonna happen well they hint at the you know drug bit with yes the, from it's Tiffany. all hinted at it's all kind of like oh by the way this happened it seems like you didn't really like any of the non-music segments no, no. I mean, it, there's barely a believable conversation in the entire film, which seems like a very Brian Singer thing. He can do action, he can do amazing set pieces, but as soon as people have to talk in anything other than announcements, it, it falls apart. And while Malik does give this wonderful balance between brilliant frontman, infuriating egotist and lonely soul, everyone else is just... Ugh. And it's weird that the other Queen members are portrayed as stuck in the mud and... Always just there to eye roll at Freddie Mercury's lifestyle. Oddly, it's like they prefer an early night all the time. They're just, you know, oh, well, you know. Well. Which we all know is, was not true of Queen. Well, I mean, to their own admittance, you know, they, they obviously like to party. You know, they like to, they maybe not as much as Freddie Mercury, but they they weren't like, oh, well, we'll just leave the party early now and go and get some cocoa. Um, I definitely agree with you. There were many, many accuracy issues. But don't you feel like, oddly enough, these things only hit you in hindsight? Like, well, I mean, while I I was in the cinema watching it, I loved every bit. I thought the film was so fun to watch. And I guess how satisfied you are at the end of it depends on what you walked in expecting, right? If you walked in looking for a documentary, factual retelling of the Queen's story, then you're going to be disappointed. But if you're just asking if it was one heck of a great time, then heck yeah. There were some bits that just didn't ring true during the film. Yeah, it's like, I don't remember that happening then. So it fell off, and then when you go back and you look at it more, and then you think, oh, no, that's really off. But the bit that really kills me is that there's an amazing story to be told about Queen, and it's not just about the apocryphal stories of these orgiastic Caligula-like parties. So it's not that it's made up, it's just a needless chronological mashup. So these events happened, just not necessarily in that order. But even then, you have to ask, why? Then again, the music bits are fantastic. So it- Yeah, I feel like for someone who's as big of a Queen fan as you, it must have just been, ugh, to see it being, you know, so desecrated. No, I wouldn't say it's desecrated, but it just feels like, why, why would you do it this way? You're not going to get that many other chances. Would, so would you go see Bohemian Rhapsody again? You know what? Actually, even after knowing all its issues and all its inaccuracies, I would still definitely watch it again. It was just such fun to watch. I, okay, so, I mean, with the balance of knowing that it doesn't ring true and the, the history's all skewed, and I might just still go see it again. The music bits would just won me over. I want to go watch that Live Aid segment again. And if you forget that it's meant to be a documentary, if you just treat it as fiction, it's... Brilliant. Yeah, good treat, treat, treat it as the greatest showman because, hey, after all, Freddie Mercury was the greatest showman. But um. 
So if you don't want to be a tiger defying the laws of gravity, and you actually want to be cool, relax, get hip, and get on your tracks. <laughs> wow, that's just, that's radio blah blah. <laughs> yes, Jibberish. welcome to Radio Blah Blah. If you want to see something else other than Bohemian Rhapsody this week, Suan, what can they see? So the Freddie Mercury epic aside, another great film I saw quite recently was Black Klansman, which, by the way, you can still see at the projector, I think. All right. It's a brilliant adaptation of the unconventional true story of an American hero. So it's directed by Spike Lee and produced by the team behind Get Out, which is, by the way, also an amazing film. Mm-hmm. Black Klansman stars... John David Washington, as the first African-American detective to serve in the Colorado Springs Police Department. So along with Adam Driver as his Jewish colleague, the two infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. And how is Mr. Washington? How does he compare to his dad? Pretty good, actually, consider that he's... His dad's Denzel, I should point out. You know what? He was actually surprisingly really good. I thought his acting was really convincing, and especially considering how... Well, young and not that experienced he is. He's not he's that not, young. He's, I mean, he's not 30s. very well known. He hasn't done a lot, right? No. But he's, you know, he was really, really good. And he was a really compelling frontman for the film, I think. Uh, my recommendation of the week, if you've got Netflix, go watch Shirkers. It's a documentary, documentary about Singapore. In fact, th- about three teenagers who in 1992 uh, set out to make a film. Sandy Tan is the main protagonist in this. She's the narrator. And it's about her film. Uh, Sandy Tan was at one point a film critic for Straits Times, it seems, as well. Uh, Sandy Tan, formerly of this parish, as you can (laughs) say. And it's fascinating for many reasons. It's fascinating because it's teenagers, the main trio of Sandy Tan, Sophia Sadiq Harvey and Jasmine Ng, that these teenagers went out and they made a film like that on real cameras, not digital. And they managed to score their film roles for free from Kodak. To have that much drive to actually make a feature film is amazing. But then it's also the film that they were making was a road movie. It's set in Singapore, of course, starring Tan. And it's idiosyncratic in the classic 90s way, kind of saturated pastels like a Edward Scissorhands era Tim Burton. A touch of Jim Jarmusch and a style that you probably call today kind of very Wes Anderson-ish. But the really fascinating part is the involvement of an American called George Cardona. This early middle-aged guy who had been teaching the girls film came on board as the director of the film. He latched onto Tan, they became friends, but then his behaviour goes from erratic to, well, creepy, and in parts quite chilling. It becomes very clear that this man is not wholly who he claims to be. And this is where the drama of the thing comes out. Tan doesn't seem to see anything wrong, but Sophia and Jasmine are all too aware of his ulterior motives, his other moves, his... uh. Things like letting a whole day of filming continue despite the film having been stuck in the camera after just the first hour, or a lot more chillingly, a lot more terrifyingly, uh, seemingly waiting until the very last moment to let the actors know that a train was heading straight towards them. The experience certainly affected the friendship of the three women, and recounting that time is clearly uh, the reopening of an old wound. Now interviewed in their middle age, they must be at the same age as me, I guess, uh, the interviews have that kind of... A bristle, they have an uncomfortableness, you know, there's there's a bit of venting going on. Then the film becomes a modern mystery, almost a noir, like a Hearts of Darkness, as there's a journey to discover the truth behind who George Cardona was. 
and what happened to Shirkers, the film. So this documentary, it's got heart, it's got intrigue, it's got nostalgia. It's, I mean, it's great seeing the 90s Singapore. It's a kind of just-before-I-arrived era. It's also got amazing music. It's skipped to the end to hear the soundtrack that never was. It's really beautiful. And then, we'll, of course, watch the whole thing from the start. The only thing I really want to happen now is I, I really hope that the makers of Shirkers... Okay, this will Make sound sure. odd. Make Shirkers, yeah. Finish Shirkers. Well... Yeah. Speaking of shirking, it's yes. time for me to shirk my responsibilities now. <laughs> and with that, it is time to say goodbye. And if you're listening on iTunes, please do leave a review, rate us, tell us what you think, or indeed, messages on podcast.sph.com.sg. For now, Saran, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Said with absolute no conviction, are you part of the Casta Bohemian Rhapsody? <laughs> Wow. Anyway, yes, thanks anyway, Suan. And until we join you again for another double feature, goodbye. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.